welcome back to this episode of Nate Helps Rob Fulfill His Movie Goals. Indeed. Yes. This is Rob and Nate Record a Podcast, and tonight we watched a, a classic, perhaps you should say film literacy film. Mm-hmm. And this checks off a movie off of my list for this year. Oh, so, good. Yeah. Good. Good for you. I didn't even realize that. Well, the general category that I had at the beginning of the year for my movie goals, this totally fits into that. So thank you for helping me fulfill my movie goals. You are quite welcome. And I am excited that I was able to help you fulfill this goal. And I'm excited about this whole month because this is our first episode of Billy Wilder Month. And Billy Wilder is one of my absolute favorite writer-directors. I am very excited to be curating this month. In fact, I could easily curate three Billy Wilder months. And I don't doubt that. In fact, Nate has been talking about curating Billy Wilder months for multiple years. Mm -hmm. We put this on the calendar, and Nate has talked about this month since last November. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's already been decided we'll have a Billy Wilder month Possibly yearly for a couple of years. Yeah, and we haven't even even that was decided before we started. Yeah, month. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So my plan uh, for what to do for this month is we're going to watch four films: one from the '40s, one from the '50s, one from the '60s, one from the '70s. Two of them are going to be dramas, and two of them are going to be comedies. And the reason I want to do this is as a kind of representative sample, an overview, a survey course. Billy Wilder had a long career. His first film credit was in 1929. His last was in 1981. Hmm. He worked over a pretty good selection, pretty good spread of genres, mysteries, film noir, biopics. But his favorite by far was comedy. He always considered himself chiefly a writer more than a director and chiefly a comedy writer. Yeah. But tonight's film, even though it has comic elements, is uh, one of the dramas It's going to be our representative of the 1940s, even though it is a 1950s release. It uh, came out on August the 10th, uh, 1950, so 70 years minus one week from the point that we are recording this. Six days, to be exact. Six days. And 1950, of course, I'm justifying myself here, was technically the last year of the 1940s. Uh, This film was shot in 1949 and at least partly set in 1949. But uh, going into this, uh, you know that of my love of Wilder, but you've had kind of a limited experience. There's two of his films that I know you've seen. One is, in some ways, his best-known film, which is Some Like It Hot because of the Marilyn Monroe connection. He made two films with Marilyn, and after making the second one, said, I'm too rich to ever have to go through that again. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) <laughs> she was famously difficult. So you've seen that, and then a few years ago for Christmas, I showed you my favorite Billy Wilder film, which is The Apartment. Which I loved. Which won the Oscar uh, for Best Film, 1960. Yeah. Which is an excellent film. Yeah. One thing, two things, this film, that film shares with this film is New Year's is part of the storyline, and characters named Sheldrake. Oh, yeah. Which is a name that's uh, vaguely dirty that uh, Billy Wilder thought was funny, so he kept using it. But before we start talking about the film uh, in much depth, uh, I want to talk about Billy Wilder in a little bit, uh, kind of about his career going up to this film. But going into this, what were your expectations? What did you know about Billy Wilder? Well, I I didn't know a lot about Billy Wilder. I actually didn't realize he was the director of Some Like It Hot. I'd forgotten he was the director of The Apartment. When you reminded me of that, my expectations went up a little bit. You know, I was like, okay, you know, if he directed those two and they're that solid, 
you know, this should at least be something decent. I was a little bit skeptical with how excited you've been about this month. I was kind of mm-hmm. like, oh man, like what if this is something, there's something in here I don't like. There's, a, you know, like uh-huh. almost a sense of dread of like, oh man, what if I, it doesn't live up to Nate's expectations? Uh-huh. I think it hit the mark. So far, so good. Yeah. Well, Billy Wilder is an interesting man. Uh, he was uh, born in 1906. He died in 2002. So this is a man who has both seen the crown prince of the Austro-Hungarian Empire alive and watched 9-11 on television. Yeah. And that's just crazy to think that's, that's an incredible lifespan. Oh, yeah. When he died, I remember being surprised that he was still alive because I had just assumed this was before Wikipedia that he had died a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but uh, obviously he had not. But he was born in uh, what is now Poland and what was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire to a middle-class Jewish family. His father would die before World War II, uh, but he would lose his mother and his sister in the concentration camps. Hmm. He had uh, left uh, Europe by then, and I'll probably circle back a little bit to that. So after childhood, uh, Wilder worked a number of jobs, including a reporter, dance instructor, and according to some accounts, a male prostitute. Wow. Uh, He ended up in the film industry in Berlin starting in about 1929. One of his earliest films was a film called Menschen on Sonntag, or People on Sunday, which is a film about a bunch of Berliners enjoying their Sunday off that was filmed about two or three years before the rise of the Nazi party. And I have seen this film. When you watch it now, it's unintentionally creepy. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of it was filmed on location, uh, not really professional actors in a lot of the parts, and you just know a lot of these people were Nazis. Yeah. And it's weird seeing them having a fun Sunday. But he worked in as a screenwriter. He was, again, principally thought of himself as a writer in Germany uh, up through about 33, 34. Uh, had, a, had a fair number of credits. And then he left as the anti-Semitism started to get more serious, and he went over to France, and he made one film there. I'm going to butcher the title in French. Montvous Agarne which translates to The Bad Seed. And this film is essentially gone in 60 seconds. It's a car, car thievery film that featured a then-teenage Danielle Deroux, who went on to be a huge star in France and who passed away in 2017 at the age of 100. Huh. He made enough money off of this film to finance his immigration to America, but he couldn't go in directly, and I forget the exact reason why. He went in through Mexico and essentially kind of sneaked across the border, but was let in. Because at this point in the mid-30s, I think there was, I don't think the concentration camps had really started yet, but there was some understanding about what was going, by at least some people, about the plight of the Jews in Europe. And uh, Wilder lucked out to find a fairly sympathetic border guard who let him in with minimal questions. And even though Billy Wilder, as I've said multiple times, was mostly thought of himself as a writer. In fact, his tombstone says, I was a, says, I, I was a writer, but uh, nobody's perfect. <laughs> so he f- gets to the border, and the, the border guard asks him, well, what, what do you do? It's like, I, I write movies. Border guard pauses for a moment and says, well, make sure you write some good ones. <laughs> and let him in, and Wilder would comment that he, he tried to make good yeah. on that promise. This is a story that he told in his authorized biography. Again, for a writer, it's interesting that he never actually wrote an autobiography, but he did interviews for an authorized biography, which I've read, which I'm sure a lot of the information I'll share uh, over the coming episodes will come from. 
But he made it to uh, the United States, made it to California, got a job at Paramount Studios, which is basically where he stayed for the studio portion of his career before he went semi-independent. Uh, a lot of his 60s films were done with something called the Mersh Company. Uh, hmm. They did uh, The Apartment and other films. But he was not, obviously, a native English speaker, and so the studio thought it would be wise to pair him with someone who was. And so they paired him with a man named Charlie Brackett, who had a completely different background from Billy Wilder. He was from an established New England family, if memory serves. He was very well educated. Wilder was mostly self-educated. Uh, he was very literate. Uh, and reportedly, they didn't really like each other that much, but they really worked well together. Uh, and they had uh, a tremendous uh, period of uh, successful output uh, in the uh, 40s, going into probably the, the early 50s, writing films. Billy Wilder was not always super pleased with the way the films that he wrote worked out. Whenever it was directed by a fellow expat named Ernst Lubitsch, he loved Lubitsch uh, his entire life. He had a sign in his office into the 80s, I think, that said, what would Lubitsch do? He was his writing god, you know, his idol for, for comic filmmaking. And so when Lubitsch would make one of his films, uh, one of his scripts like Ninochka or Ball of Fire, he was pleased, but not so pleased with the way some of the other directors adapted his work. And so he decided to get my words right on screen, I need to become a director. And what he used as a bargaining chip to start directing at Paramount was the success of another writer-turned-director at Paramount named Preston Sturgis. And Preston Sturgis deserves a month at some point. Uh, he started out as a writer, became a director. He had an, an extraordinary, extraordinarily intense, brief period of creative output during the World War II years where it just he would do three or four films a year, and about 80% of them were excellent. Hmm. He had the occasional misfire, but he did uh, The Lady Eve, uh, Miracle at Morgan's Creek, uh, The Palm Beach Story, The Great McGinty, Hail the Conquering Hero. He was just, he was just pushing them out, and then he kind of spent his energy. And after the war, only made a couple more films, and they generally weren't as good. But because Sturgis had done so well, Paramount agreed to let him direct a film on a trial basis, uh, which was a film called The Major and the Minor, which I did not realize until researching this was not written by Billy Wilder. It was a script from somebody else that they just let him direct. Uh, and it's a good film. It's not one of his strongest films, but it's funny. And it did well. And so after that, he was allowed to direct his own scripts. And he had a lot of success with that, uh, directing the film... Five Graves to Cairo in 1943, a World War II adventure film. Uh, the classic Double Indemnity in 48. The Academy Award winning The Lost Weekend in 45. He made a film called The Emperor Waltz in 1948, which is set in the Austro-Hungarian Empire of his youth and is probably his most sentimental film. It's really, and, and it's kind of a musical. It's really not like anything else he did. Uh, a Foreign Affair in 1948. And then in 1950, the film that we watched this evening, Sunset Boulevard, uh, one of his absolute classics, my second favorite Billy Wilder film after The Apartment. You came into this more or less blind, right? You knew the title, but you had no idea what this film was even about. I knew that I knew, I knew that I should know a few things about this film. And now that we've finished the film, like now there's certain things that stand out. You know, of course, this is where one of the all-time classic movie lines that's misquoted comes mm -hmm. from. But yeah, it was, yep. yep. 
I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. It's Mr. DeMille. Mr. DeMille, I'm, I'm ready, ready for, for my close-up. Yep. But it doesn't sound as good. Yeah. So, yeah, so you came in kind of blind. What were your, I mean, what did you think? I thought it was good. It's, it's a solid film. The character development across the film is very well done. Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond is great. She plays that character arc very well. This film, the way it opens and the way the first, you know, probably 30 minutes develops, you're kind of wondering where is this going? And then it, it really starts setting up the plot device, you know, and it, it has some great twists and turns. It has some good characters in it. Yeah, it's great. I think I may have seen a couple moments of big grin on your face. Oh, there was definitely some big smiles. Mm. Yeah, I I don't know that I... I don't really have the big grin movie the way Nate does. Mm. But yeah, there were certainly moments that it totally paid off. You know, and so big smiles on my face and things like that. But yeah. Mm. And actually, kind of a funny thing from uh, this movie. At one point when they're in the reader's room in that in uh, in Betty Schaefer's office... He makes a comment of the, they, they'll share the same bed and shifts. It makes a smaller set, so it's cheaper to produce. Do you notice how small the sets are on this film in general? Mm-hmm. Most of it's either at the house or it's at the studio, that one little street in the studio. Mm-hmm. So they kind of, you know, he, he works his own things into the movies. Yeah, it's very much a self-referential film. It's very much a film about Hollywood in, its, in that period, and, which was a transitional period in Hollywood, as seemingly all periods yeah. are. Uh, one of the great things about it is it is about old Hollywood versus new Hollywood. Yeah. But that old Hollywood has now been replaced by several additional new Hollywoods yeah. over the course of time. And it's a film that provoked a strong reaction by some. Louis B. Mayer, uh, the head of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, despised this film. They thought it was basically a finger to Hollywood from Wilder and that it should not have been made. But he was he was treating it the way Bally Wilder treated his subject matter which was with some affection but also with a rice cynicism yeah and so he could recognize the flaws and the short-sightedness and 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 how people are forgotten in hollywood yeah and this is one of the great hollywood films of all time it really captures that that era we should probably talk a little bit about the the plot at least in thumbnail sketch so this is the story of a man named joe gillis played by william holden he is uh kind of a struggling writer. He's had a few, as he says, a few B films to his credit. Uh, and he's just uh, having a slow streak. He's just not making money. He's owing money on his apartment. He owes money on his car. He's desperate to keep his car, which is a pretty cool convertible. Yeah. And so he's hiding it, but he's got the repo guys that are trying to get it. And again, to very briefly sketch out a skeleton of the story, he is caught by the repo men while driving his car looking for work and for ways to raise money to keep it. And so he gets in a kind of a chase and a tire blows. And so he just pulls into the nearest driveway on Sunset Boulevard. And it turns out to belong to a former silent star named Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson. And through course of events, he kind of falls in with her. She's delusional. She wants to make, not a comeback, I hate that word, it's a return, and is scripting a silent-style adaptation of the Salome story from the Bible, which is a very silent-era type of storyline. Well, she said she spent like six years six writing Six years it. writing this. And so he's supposed to just basically edit Script it. Script doctorate, yeah. yeah. And over a course of time, he becomes aware that Well, but Norma, his first introduction to Norma... Oh, the... 
is that the monkey they think funeral. He's basically the the undertaker. Yeah, the the, the coffin showing man. Showing up with a coffin. Yeah, because uh, Dorma has a pet monkey who has died, and so she had called for somebody to provide a child's coffin in which to lay the monkey to rest. Very specific, though. Yeah, yeah, she had very specific. Uh, uh, velvets and, and other things she talked about putting in it. It's it's a really bizarre scene, yeah. and that scene where you know he's wandering around the mansion, which at first he thinks is abandoned, and then he's called by Norma Desmond on the second floor. Come over here, I need to talk to you. He goes over there, is led into the house by Max or Butler, and Max has this kind of offline after kind of pushing him up the stairs, and he's like, I don't. I don't think that what's going on is like, if you need any help with the coffin, let me know. And he has this wonderful look on his face. Like what the hell have I gotten myself into? What's going on? He goes upstairs, finds the dead monkey at first. Norma Desmond, you're not who I wanted. Get out of here. Wait, he makes some kind of crack about how he recognizes her and then makes some kind of crack about how he's a writer. And she's like, you're a writer. And she commissions him to work on that horrible script and develops uh, an obsession with him, and basically he becomes her kept man. Yep. And he feels very conflicted about this. And there is a woman, played by Nancy Olson, uh, named Betty Schaefer, who is a reader at Paramount, who in an early scene tells uh, Sheldrake, one of the producers there, that uh, the story, uh, Bases Loaded, which is a baseball story that... A desperate Joe Gillis is trying to get the studio to make. It's just not very good. He's trying to sucker him into buying. Trying to sucker him, yeah. And so there's a little antipathy at first, but it turns out she has a connection to a buddy of his. They're dating and later engaged, and played by Jack Webb. Played by Jack Webb, and we'll get back. Archie Green. We'll get back to Jack Webb, and they end up working on a project together because she felt bad about about uh, dashing Gillis's hopes like that. So went into some of his old scripts on file, found a script that had a flashback scene dealing with a teacher that she thought was much better than the psychological murder mystery that it was put into, convinces him to work with her to develop a script about the teacher because they think they can sell it. And uh, they start to have feelings for each other. And uh, Norma Desmond becomes jealous and the film ends in a way that you know it's going to end because it's the opening scene, but it's still a little bit of a surprise. There's still a little bit of a satisfaction when you see it coming together. It's like, oh, that's how that happens. Yeah. Now, the first scene in the film, of course, is the film is narrated by a dead Joe Gillis about the morning in which his body is found in Norma Desmond's pool. And there's a really cool shot that they did uh, with mirrors and other things that you look like, it looks like you're looking up at Joe Gillis's body from the bottom of the pool. It, it it looks good for a shot from that period. That was not the original opening sequence of the film. The original opening sequence of the film would have followed Joe Gillis's body into the morgue uh, with a little um, tag tied to his toe. And then the dead Joe Gillis would tell his story to the other corpses in the morgue. Oh, really? There is footage of this. Yeah. It was not, I don't think it ever made a final edit. But on the DVD, the special edition DVD, that's in there. Sometime you'll have to bring that down. I'd, I'd be curious to watch that. And Does I, it work? It, uh, it, it works, yeah. And I've actually had a funny story about that uh, DVD, which, which you'll enjoy. And, and we forgot to talk about how I first came into acquaintance with this film. So I came into acquaintance with it 
basically by its name and its reputation as a great film. And in the months prior, especially prior to going on my mission, I tried to jam in as many well-regarded films as I could. And I watched this probably a few months before I went. I have the sharp memory of it because I'm pretty sure I told you the plot of this movie on the mission. Uh, you probably remember very little of it, but that was one of the things we would do for entertainment is I would present Elder Dredge Theater and I would tell the plots of movies and act them out. Let's uh, get this correct. It was Elder Dredge Masterpiece Elder Theater. Elder Dredge Masterpiece Theater, yes. yes. And I was I was pretty good movie teller, especially yes. at that time. My memory was very sharp for it. Uh, but I loved the movie and I knew that when I got home, I definitely wanted to buy a copy. I bought my personal copy of this film when I came down here for your wedding. Oh, really? Yeah, so this was early 2003, so about a year after the Olympics. And while we were down, I went with my mom and my dad, and we went to the Gateway Center. And in the building that now houses the Barnes & Noble was a DVD store, and I bought my copy there. Yeah? Probably one of the first five DVDs I purchased. Nice. That's fitting for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot to talk about uh, in this film, and I'm sure we'll, we'll jump around a little bit. Um, the mansion. The mansion, uh, the interiors were filmed on a soundstage, but they used an actual mansion really? for the exteriors, uh, which is long gone. A lot of the structures that were in this film have uh, been torn down as development uh, has happened over the ensuing decades. The apartment complex, though, that, uh, George, uh, that Joe Gillis... Uh, has his little apartment in at least at the time the dvd came out special edition dvd came out in 2002 ish still existed and was still an apartment complex i think it existed further than that i think that that apartment complex is also in the film roman j israel esquire it could be i think i recognized it but it was hard because this was a black and white and then they also visit Schwab's drugstore which was uh, kind of a famous institution in Los Angeles at the time it was where people in the industry would hang out and there's a famous untrue story that Lana Turner was found discovered uh, by the director Mervyn Leroy at the um, the malt counter at Schwab's uh, drugstore yeah so it was the place to be seen we should definitely talk uh, about the cast yeah. I mean, how can you not? This is a wonderfully cast film. William Holden plays Joe Gillis. Uh, William Holden had been in Hollywood for be- better than a decade, but his career had never really taken off. He had been a working actor, but he was never a big star. His first film in Hollywood was an adaptation of a Broadway play called uh, Golden Boy. And the play starred on Broadway John Garfield. But for whatever reason, I think there's probably a scheduling conflict. He was, or he was at a different studio than got the rights. Uh, he was not offered that part, even though it's the part that kind of made him. It's a, it's a story. It's kind of a melodramatic story about a man who's a boxer, but he's also a violinist. And which one is his real passion? And I, I didn't really care for it when I finally saw it. But uh, they they decided it would be a good intro for uh, William Holden, who they the studio hoped big things from but within a few weeks of starting filming the studio was having second thoughts and said maybe we need to get garfield and and get rid of holden but barbara stanwick his co-star in the film said if if you get rid of him i'm i'm gone it's like you got to get you got to give the kid a chance and many years later when barbara stanwick got her american film institute lifetime achievement award one of the speakers was william holden who said the only reason i have a career is because of barbara stanwick yeah which is sweet yeah 
anyway, that film, not a huge success. He continued to work, but this was the movie that really launched his career. Yeah. He would make an additional three movies with Billy Wilder, Sabrina, with Audrey Hepburn and uh, Humphrey Bogart, Stalig 17, for which he would win his Oscar, and then Fedora uh, in the late 70s, which was Billy Wilder's second-to-last film, which has a lot of similarities to Sunset Boulevard in that it is also about a, reclus- a reclusive star. It's not nearly as good. So this would start, the 50s were an excellent decade uh, for William Holden. He made Love is a, a, a Many Splendored Thing. I think he made that. He made Bridge on the River Kwai. He, he was a real big name star in the 50s. Then his career would start to peter a bit in the 60s. And then he would have another rejuvenation of his career after the success of The Wild Bunch in oh, yeah. 1968. And then he would make at least one more great film, which is Network uh, before dying kind of sadly in the early 80s. He was drunk, hit his head on a coffee table, and either could not reach the phone on it or decided he would rather not bother to call for help and died in his, his apartment. Wow. It's a really sad ending. Gloria Swanson plays Norma Desmond. What, what, did you, what did you think of her? She plays the role well. It's a very well-written character. But it's such an odd character. I'd, I'd want to see Gloria Swanson in something else before I made up my mind about her. Mm-hmm. I think it's her best performance. I've only seen her in three other films. This is the one that you remember. And yeah. she always felt she didn't like that. Because uh, her and a number of characters in this film, uh, especially Eric von Stroheim, who we'll get to, are playing versions of themselves. Yeah. And Swanson's version of herself in this is not very complimentary she's crazy now the real swanson was not that the real swanson was pretty sharp this character career basically ended when talkies came swanson's did not she was not as big a talkie star as she was a silent star but she continued to work periodically but she didn't really need to work because like bob hope uh, and a few other actors she realized buy la real estate she bought a lot of la real estate when she was young and that took care of her for the rest of her life because she was one of the big property owners in Los Angeles. It's a great, great performance. Uh, I mentioned I've only seen her in three other things, one of which she plays herself, which is in the movie Airport 1975, which also features Nancy Olsen. And then uh, I'd seen Beyond the Rocks, which is the silent film that she made with Rudolph Valentino, who is referenced in the film. Uh, That film from 1922 was for a long time thought to be lost until a 98.5% intact copy was found in the collection of an eccentric Danish film collector in like the, the late 90s and was restored. It's okay. It's a, it's a silent romance. And then last night I decided I should watch another Gloria Swanson film, so I watched a film called Indiscreet from 1931, an early talkie, and it sucked. It was bad. <laughs> I, I did not like it. Yeah. The the review I read of it online uh, had mentioned that it was a comedy, and I'm like, where's where's the comedy? I, I didn't the comedy was in once. it for that writer who got you to watch it expecting a comedy. Yeah, pretty much. It was it it was a a love quadrangle, and it it, it just it didn't it didn't catch me. Yeah. It's not very long, which was helpful. Um, there is one moment where Gloria Swanson gives another character a death a death glare. That is such a great death glare that it should be a meme. Like, it's just like, 
she looks like she could literally kill the man sitting next to her. But uh, she lived a uh, a long life, uh, born 1899, died in 1983. They make a comment in the film that uh, Norma Desmond was married uh, three times. Gloria Swanson was married six times, her final marriage to her biographer in her, her later years. So she is the character she, she plays. In some way, she is. Um, I mean, the DeMille relationship. They talk about in this film that uh, Norma Desmond had made uh, a dozen films with Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, Gloria Swanson made six. Hmm. Uh, and when Cecil B. DeMille, who has a wonderful cameo in the film, uh, says uh, Young Fella as a nickname, that was his nickname for, for Gloria Swanson. Uh, you have Eric von Stroheim. Eric von Stroheim, a very Germanic fellow who was uh, a great silent director who uh, was eccentric and uh, kind of did himself in as, as a director. And feels like he should be a Bond villain. He does. Had he lived longer, he would have he would have been an excellent doctor, uh, an, excellent, an excellent Blofeld. He looks yeah. like Blofeld. Yeah. If they had made a 1950s James Bond movie, he would have been an obvious yeah. uh, casting choice. He, after directing Dried Up, uh, he was an actor, uh, both in Europe and in the United States. He was in uh, a great film, a French film called The Grand Illusion in the late 30s. Uh, And he played uh, General Rommel in Billy Wilder's Five Graves to Cairo in 1943, even though he does not look like General Rommel. But he's got the Germanic bearing. Uh, rounding out the main four in the cast is Nancy Olson, who was 21 at the time this film was made. Uh, she is still with us at the age of 92. Uh, she is perhaps best known as Fred uh, McMurray's love interest in the Nutty Professor films. Uh, she worked off and on uh, over over the years. Um, then we have uh, Jack Webb. Uh, I believe Jack Webb was probably already doing Dragnet on the radio at this point. Uh, he's, of course, most famous as Joe Friday. What I love about this role for him is it's completely nothing like Joe Friday. Yeah. Joe Friday is just the facts, ma'am. This guy is a jokester. Yep. He's a very likable man. He's an assistant director who is a friend of Joe Gillis's, uh, who has also becomes engaged uh, to Betty Schaefer and uh, kind of complicates things when Betty Schaefer, after spending time at night writing the screenplays with Joe, realizes this is... I love Joe, and basically sets up Joe's untimely demise when uh, Gloria Swanson finds out. This also has Fred Clark as Sheldrake, and then a lot of people as themselves. As you themselves. mentioned Cecil B. DeMille, mm-hmm. Head of Hopper, Buster Keaton, yeah, there's Anakin several Nelson, people. H.B. Warner, who you would remember as Mr. Gower, Buster Gower, yeah, from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, but who in the uh, 20s was a huge star, a leading man. He played Jesus Christ in Cecil B. DeMille's King of Kings in 1927. Yeah. Uh, DeMille's uh, cameo was, uh, they have a number of scenes at Paramount, and DeMille's cameo was filmed while he was making the film Samson and Delilah. Yeah. So that places this film, which kind of the centerpiece of it is a, a really awkward New Year's party, a couple New Year's parties. Gloria Swanson's, which is super awkward, and then the one at Jack Webb's house, which is much more playful and includes cameo appearances by the writers of the song Button and Bows, which yeah. just won a Best Song Oscar singing Buttons and Bows. Yeah, that whole New Year's Eve 
part of the plot was, was, was pretty interesting and well executed. But anyway, the DeMille cameo, he's shooting Samson and Delilah, which came out in 1949, which puts this film as spanning 1948 through 1949, but not in the musical version. You probably were not aware that there is an Andrew Lloyd Webber Sunset Boulevard musical from the early 90s that starred Glenn Close in the Gloria Swanson role. It is excellent. It is the only Broadway musical soundtrack that I have ever purchased. Wow. I would highly recommend it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm going to listen to it tonight. Yeah. But in that musical version, it's 49 to 50 because of some lyrics in the, uh, the, the New Year's Eve party song. 1950 will be my start. I'll stop carrying spears, says the poor spear-carrying actors. Yeah. What did you think of the use of DeMille and some of the old uh, actors and just the, the homages to old Hollywood? Well, so the more that I'm sitting here, I mean, I, Nate intentionally didn't tell me what we were watching tonight until tonight. So I had no opportunity to do some research, but as we're sitting here and talking about it and I'm doing, you know, learning a little bit more about it, I can see why some people say, you know, referred to this uh, as Billy Wilder's F.U. to Hollywood. I can see some of that. I mean, he certainly wants to play on a lot of the Hollywood stereotypes of the time, and he wants those to fit into his movie. And he wants to kind of, I don't know if mock them is the right word, but he wants to reference them and make jokes about them. And he wants to say that Hollywood's not a kind place yeah and hollywood especially at this era or the you know this this was starting to fray a bit by the late 40s early 50s but it had this magic town kind of thing and it wanted to be this fantasy world and but it wasn't he wasn't the first person to take digs at hollywood like this as you will see soon when you watch as we discussed earlier the original star is born star is born has some harsh things to say about 1930s Hollywood but this film is particularly pointed it seems like every century that there is films that want to have messages about Hollywood seems like there's one that comes every decade Mm. if not more than one the player in the 90s Hollywood Boulevard in the 70s Tropic Thunder in in the early 2000s I mean this is something that is returned to pretty often once upon a time in Hollywood Yeah, yeah exactly yeah so I mean, this is this is a theme that comes up over and over again. It's interesting to see it closer to the beginning of what we consider modern day Hollywood. But yeah, you got to talk about the writing. You got to talk about the dialogue. It's so great. There's yeah. so much good dialogue in it. Um, one of the great things about the film is the narration that Joe Gillis gives throughout the film, which gives us some of the best dialogue in it. And I'm going to read uh, a few selections from that uh, from IMDb. Well, this is where you came in, back at that pool again, the one I always wanted. It's dawn now, and they must have photographed me a thousand times. Then they got a couple of pruning hooks from the garden and fished me out, ever so gently. Funny how gentle people can get with you once you're dead. Audiences don't know somebody sits down and writes a picture. They think the actors make it up as they go along. The poor dope, he always wanted a pool. Well, in the end, he got himself a pool. So they were turning... After So they were turning after all those cameras. Life, which can be so strangely merciful, had taken pity on Norma Desmond. The dream she had clung to so desperately had enfolded her. Uh, that, of course, refers to the whole plot line about the script. So she has this horrible script that Joe does his best to prune. They send it Paramount. 
Well, he, but she also won't let him prune. Yeah. He has no expectations that it's going to be picked up because it's absolutely horrible. But they keep getting calls from Paramount. And Norma Desmond assumes that it's about her script, is upset that it's some studio functionary named Golden Gordon Cole who keeps calling and not DeMille. So she keeps holding out for DeMille to call, gets tired of waiting. They take their old, I wrote down the name of this awesome Germanic car someplace, and Azata Fraschini. A 1929 handcrafted automobile, which in the dialogue they state cost $28,000, which in 1929 would have been a little more than $422,000. So it's an extravagant. There's, there was so much extravagance in the, yes. in the 1920s. So they go to the studio, and th- that's where the DeMille cameo comes on, where he's trying to tell her that they're not going to make the film, but can never quite bring himself to do it because she's so delusional and not hearing when he when he tries to subtly bring that up uh but the reason why the studio kept calling was because they wanted to borrow her elaborate 1920s automobile for a bing crosby film yeah period piece um the character gordon cole who's responsible for this has one scene he has probably two or three lines of dialogue but he is in a way the central character of the film he's he's a pivot point that if if he had not called about this car, would Joe Gillis have died? He set in, in motion these events. He facilitated them. Yeah. And David Lynch, another one of my favorite directors, is a big Billy Wilder fan. And on the television series uh, Twin Peaks, he plays a recurring character, an assistant FBI director named Gordon Cole, as a tribute to this film. Nice. That's awesome. A little piece of trivia I found while you were mm-hmm. while we were sitting here. As a practical joke, this comes from IMDb. During the scene where William Holden and Nancy Olson kiss for the first time, Bill, Billy Wilder let that kiss go on for for minutes without yelling "cut." Apparently, he'd already gotten the first the shot that he wanted and needed on the first take, and so he just was messing with them. But eventually, do you want to know? Do you know who actually called "cut"? Who? William Holden's wife, who was on set that day. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. And Nancy Olsen's great in this. She's very girl next door. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. There is so much trivia on this on the IMDb page. Oh, yeah. I, I was, I was just days. looking at it, and I don't think I've ever seen a trivia page on IMDb that had more entries. Yeah. So it, it, it could be worth, if you're interested, and especially if you know the film, to kind of look up some of these stories. Associated with it, um, it's it's just a beautifully rich film. It's a film that I absolutely love, and then I'm excited that I got to show you. There's a lot of layers in this film, uh-huh. and it's great. But yeah, it's such unusual. I mean, what would you even say this is? I mean, it's got comic elements. It's a drama. I would, it's co- I would consider it a drama. It's a little bit film noirish at points. I would consider this pretty solidly a drama. Mm. If anything, it's satirical. I would, you know, if anything, I'd I'd call it a comedic drama. No, yeah. uh, this or film a dramatic comedy. Well, no, I wouldn't call it a dramatic comedy. I'd call it a comedic drama. Yeah, this film did quite well. Obviously, it it uh, revitalized uh, the career, uh, especially of William Holden. Well, nine Oscar nominations. Uh, nine Oscar nominations. It. Uh, I feel that this should have won the Oscar. It did not. Uh, the film that won the Oscar that year was... You mean for Best Picture? For Best Picture. Okay. The film that won that year is a film called All About Eve with Betty Davis, which is a satirical film about Broadway. 
as opposed to Hollywood. And uh, it was felt that maybe the people in Hollywood were more comfortable voting for skewering the East Coast than for skewering yeah. uh, things back home. Well, this did win three Oscars. Do you remember which three? I do not. Uh, it won Best Writing for Story and Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Black and White, and Best Music Scoring of a Dramatic or com- Comedy Picture. It's a good score. Yeah. Uh, you don't always notice it a lot, but there's a few scenes uh, in which you do. Uh, the most memorable part of the score is that last scene, which we have to talk about the last scene. Well, real quick, I was going to mention the other Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. It also uh, received a nomination for Best Actor in a Supporting in a, in a Leading Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Actress in a wow. Supporting Role, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Black and White, Best Film Editing, and Best Picture. Yeah. So I mean that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean all all the all four major parts. Yeah. Uh, got those nominations. That doesn't happen too often. Nope. So, but yeah, the final scene. The, the final scene. scene. So, as is fated, Norma kills Joe in a fit of jealousy. Uh, she breaks, and you can see the moment in the film in which she goes crazy. She's always a little bit crazy, but there's a moment in which Joe's leaving her, and she just can't take it. Well, I wondered throughout the film. Because obviously you know what's coming from the from the opening mm-hmm. of the film. I wondered who would be the one that would end up shooting him. But I knew it the moment you see the gun on the bed. Yeah, you may have thought for a while it was Max. I mean, yeah, he's the, the he's he's the, the only other uh, suspect, and Max certainly has an interesting backstory that yeah. that's not revealed until very late. He's the, he's the very loyal butler, and it turns out that she he was the director who discovered Norman Desmond and was her first husband. Yep, could have continued his career but was so distraught by the breakup of the marriage, just had to be around her, that he consented to be the butler through two additional marriages and who knows how many affairs and, yeah. and romantic relationships. Entanglement. There's so much about the, the excesses of the 20s in this film. The, the crazy, uh, kind of the crazy houses that the crazy movie stars made in the crazy 20s. Yep. And they were making $18,000 a week without taxes. And they were buying half a million dollar, by modern equivalents, automobiles. And she had a house with eight bedrooms and sunken tubs. Eight master bedrooms. Eight master bedrooms, sunken tubs in each bedroom, a bowling alley in the cellar. She has a house on the beach in Glendale. I forget the, the town that she mentions that we never see, but that she has and she maintains. And like the real... Gloria Swanson, Norman Des- Norma Desmond, bought a lot of land and bought oil wells and stuff when, when she was at the top of her career. And so she is in no need of money. Yeah. Even though she lives in a Miss Havisham-type situation in this decaying mansion that I am so sad was torn down. Yeah. I wish that still existed. Well, you get the impression that even then it wasn't in the best no. of shape. And I think it may have been the same mansion that was used in uh, Rebel Without a Cause. There's a scene where they go into an abandoned mansion in the Hollywood area, and this that movie was filmed only five years later, so the mansion was probably still around at that point. I'd have to double-check yeah. that. But The closing the scene... Closing scene they have to, she's crazy, and the, the cops are there, and the press is there, and, the, and Hedda Hooper, the gossip columnist, who was also a star and a sporting player in the silent era, and probably would have known that character from from their uh, from their Hollywood acting days, are there, and she's delusional, and they have to figure out how to get her out of the house, and when she hears that cameras are there, 
she's like, oh, the camera's for my scene. Yeah. And Max gets to direct her again, going down the stairwell. But she doesn't realize it's Max. Thinking it's DeMille, thinking they're shooting her Salome picture. And then she gives a gushing, I'm so happy speech as she's being let out for probably a murder charge. She does her scene coming down the staircase in the Grand Palace. And then at the bottom she says, oh no, we have to cut. I'm I'm, I'm so too happy too for happy. this. And so she gives her happy speech. And then we get the famous line, Mr. DeMille. I'm ready for my close-up. And she does some creepy gesticulations with her hands, and we fade to black. Yep. It's a wonderful film. I love it. I would give it four stars out of four and ten out of ten. Why what are you feeling? Uh, I would give this four stars on the four-star scale. On the ten-star scale, I'd give it a solid nine stars. Mm. It's it's a definite uh, film literacy film. Uh, it. I've, I don't know how many times I've seen it. Probably a dozen. Yeah. Maybe more. It's definitely one I'll go back to at some point. But yeah, I'm glad we watched that this week. So, solid start to Billy Wilder month. Yeah, yeah. Don't let me down. Keep this going like we did with uh, <laughs> Werner Herzog month. Werner Herzog month. Yeah. All right, I'll yeah. do my best. Okay. Well, I'm Rob, and I'm Nate, and this is Rob and Nate record a podcast. Oh yeah. Well, you talking about Billy Wilder? Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to unload all your knowledge somewhere, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. This week's uh, little bonus content. We're going to actually taste a soda that should be okay. All right. We're good. We're getting we've some, some pushback from we've the root had, beer store. Yeah, the owner of the root beer store, I told him about the bits we've recorded, and he's getting upset with me and says we need to t- try some good sodas. So we're going to try some good sodas. So tonight's soda choice is from the Orca Bottling Beverage Bottling Company. That's a good bottle lid. That is a good lid. Uh, and it is Red Arrow Root Beer. It's a nice can. It's a... Uh... A neat font on the red arrow. Yeah. And I'm going to use my bottle opener tonight. I'm curious how the sound will differ from Nate's traditional bottle opener. Um, this is a push-down bottle opener, so. Ding. Yep. I've had this soda before, so I'm curious to see what Nate thinks of, of this root beer. It sounds good. Yeah. Take a whiff of that. That's got a good root beer flavor smell. Yeah. It has a nice flavor. It's, it's bold, but not overbearing. I actually tried this for the first time like a week ago. Oh, come on. So I deflate it a little bit, but I do like this root beer. Yeah. This is one of the better ones. I also tried this about a week ago. I was highly impressed by this. I almost texted you the label. Mm. Um, I was impressed by this. This is one I've... This is like my... I think my third one of this one. Mm. So, yeah. It's definitely one that to, to add into the repertoire. It's, it's, uh, it's darker? Yeah. Like I said, it's got a... It's a little bit bolder than your average root beer. But not, like, overbearing in it. It tastes kind of high-end, for lack of a better word. Like, it... It oh how about that yeah that'll that'll sound fun. Um, I have talked about the Pepsi and I think I had to have some the Pepsi eighteen ninety three, which is basically high end Pepsi, and it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. It just it just tastes like it's better quality root beer. This says it has extract of wintergreen and licorice. I think that might be the yeah, Yeah. and um. 
I don't know if it was this or another one that I was having recently that I was trying to place it. And it, it was the wintergreen. That yeah, it must yeah. have been this. That the label on this bottle says Red Arrow Root Beer from Michigan, known for authentic root beer flavor. Folklore says the brand was a tribute to the Red Arrow Brigade. So, yeah. Now we're gonna have to Google the Red Arrow Brigade. I'll leave that to you. Mm. Yeah. What do you think of that one? I like it. How many bottle caps would you give it? How many bottle caps? Would, we'll have to come up with some kind of elaborate, a rating cheesy system rating system for the root beer. Yeah. Yeah, so that is us tasting a quality soda. Yeah. Yeah. We will uh, kind of take turns uh, picking sodas for the other to taste from time to time. So, yeah. Anything else on that one? No. Yeah. All right. See you guys later.